the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Thanks for coming along for the Friday edition of The Ride Home. It's a lovely day here across western Pennsylvania. We are thrilled that you choose to ride home with us. Mm. Kathy, good to see you as well. How are things? I'm super excited because some weeks go on. Everyone has a different perspective, Mm -hmm. a different, you know life of the over the last seven days for me i've lived three weeks in the past seven days mm. and so tonight i'm breaking free excellent so a little cluttered here this mm-hmm. week right but the friday's upon us so the weekend totally free yes well no of course not i have things planned all weekend uh-huh. but at least they're uh-huh. personal things and they're not work things okay so that's a better thing that's a much better thing yeah mm-hmm. but no couch time there will be couch time tonight um after i cook dinner I've already planned on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that Sunday, because there's no Steeler game, mm. my husband and I are going to watch last night's Steeler game. What? Because he went to, he had to go to bed. He saw like a half hour. Okay. And I thought, though it was painful and, you know, I was on the edge of my seat, I thought it was enjoyable. It was and a good so game. So I'd like to watch it again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that first drive was like, oh. So hey. we had the first drive and we had the fourth quarter. Oh. So the second and third quarter were like Horrible. absolutely awful. A nightmare. Again, once again. What was, a weird team. As so, mediocre as mediocre could be. I don't know whether they're okay or terrible. Well, you saw me yesterday. I thought about this a couple of times. I was talking to you and Bill Glaze yesterday. I was harsh and cold. You on weren't part. even going to no, watch the game. I know. I did. But, you know, of course there I was. Yeah, you came around. Part of the Steeler Nation. Thank goodness. But listen, that first drive, you go, look, it's the Steelers. I know. Hey, look, remember this? We used to do this all the time, right? It gave Mm -hmm. you some hope. And then, of course, uh, defense looked great. Yeah. The run game looked outstanding. Yes. A-plus all around for the Mm -hmm. run game. And then the fourth quarter kicked in, and Kenny Pickett looked pretty good once again. I don't understand. Anyway, it's a few minutes past uh, the 4 o'clock Oh, is hour it too here. early for me to tell you? Tell me what. Your weekend has begun. Fabulous. Woo-hoo! I love a fan. Thank you, sir. God bless you and yours. We feel the same way. Coming up on today's program, we're going to talk about poetry mm-hmm. in the 5 o'clock hour. Yeah, I'm excited done. about that. Also, an astrophysicist who has a better way to board airplanes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, we've got the weekend review uh, coming up at 5.30. Uh, yep. We also have in this hour, this or that. Oh, very nice. Uh-huh. The Friday feature. Yeah. All right. So that. without further ado, though, uh, I'm always interested in this. The news. Kath, give us the top four. I said at four. For Friday, November 3rd, John, 2023. Number one. The chief of the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah praised the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel and vowed his group would step up military pressure on Israel in the coming days. But... 
said it didn't plan on waging an all-out attack for the time being, easing worries that the Israel-Hamas war could spread across the region. Hassan Nasrallah, who is Hezbollah's secretary general, spoke for the first time since the attacks by Hamas amid concerns the conflict on Israel's southern end could ignite a whole other war in the north mm. um, against uh, that organization based in, in Lebanon. Hezbollah faces growing pressure from its own ranks and Palestinian groups inside their country to respond more forcefully to Israel's offensive in Gaza. An all-out war between Hezbollah and Israel has not been seen since 2006. Wow. And, of course, we can imagine how damaging it would be for both sides and how it could draw in major powers. Israel hasn't had to fight a war on multiple fronts for 50 years. That's from today's Wall Street Journal. Number two. John, how about this story? FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty on all seven counts of fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering following more than two weeks of testimony in one of the highest-profile financial crime cases in I can't think of the last time. The 31-year-old former cryptocurrency billionaire convicted of two counts of wire fraud conspiracy, two counts of wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering, charges that each carry a maximum sentence of 20 years. He was also convicted of conspiracy to commit commodities fraud and to commit securities fraud, which each carries a five-year sentence. Damian Williams is the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, said, quote, Sam Bankman-Fried perpetrated one of the biggest frauds in American history, a multi-billion dollar scheme designed to make him the king of crypto. Here's the thing, though. The cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. But this kind of fraud and corruption is as old as time. And we have no patience for it. Fare you well. I mean, crypto always seemed like super funny, weird money to begin with. Well, it was super weird right? money, right? And, and on top and, of this? And then, it, and then it completely collapsed. I mean, last year. I have friends who lost tens of thousands really? of dollars. Oh, yeah. yeah. Major League Baseball had it on their uniforms I know. last year. On the umpire's I know. uniforms. I know. So he's going to go to prison for a long time. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, um, he was accused of using some of the money to buy real estate, make political contributions, and finance pet charitable projects. Mm-hmm. Read more about that at CBS News. Number three. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi eviscerated the centrist group No Labels in its attempt to mount a third-party presidential bid. She said, quote, I think it's perilous to our democracy. This is about an illusion being created. It's not about nonpartisanship, and it's not about bringing people together. Good. Okay. Pelosi made the statement at a breakfast with reporters hosted by Third Way, a centrist Democratic group that argues that No Labels' third-party effort will lead to another Donald Trump presidency. No Labels has been trying to appeal to centrist candidates from both parties at the top of the ballot. The nonprofit's leaders have hinted at a possible mixed ticket, pairing a Democrat with a Republican as running mates who can unite the country. I think it's a great idea. Yep. I mean, look Let's at go. how look at how corrupt these two parties are, for goodness sake. Anyway, she also took aim at Robert F. Kennedy Jr. She doesn't like him either. Loose cannon there. It's from CBS News. And number four, olive oil, a daily staple of Mediterranean cuisine and the life of many a salad throughout Europe and the U.S. is experiencing a staggering rise in price. Really? Olive oil has increased by about 75% <laughs> since January of 21, dwarfing over 
overall annual inflation that has already been considered unusually high after the first over the last two years. In Spain, the world's biggest olive oil producer, prices jumped 53% just in August compared to the previous year. And that is your top four. Interesting. At four. This will tell you where I'm coming from. When you first said olive oil, the first thing that came to my mind was Popeye's girlfriend. <laughs> oh, God. Popeye's girlfriend. Don't you love olive oil? Now, here's the thing. I have not noticed an increase in olive oil you here haven't. yet. Here yet. When's the last time you bought it? Uh, probably three, two months ago, yeah, three months maybe ago. that's it. The next time you buy it, you'll have a little sticker shock, right? Yeah. I It'll mean, it in. just, it seems like the, I mean, now they're, they're talking specifically about prices in Europe, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, it's not going to take long. What's happened? Why is it? They have, they said in Spain, for example, farmers and experts primarily blame the nearly two year drought, oh. higher temperatures affecting flowering and in affecting flowering and inflation affecting fertilizer prices. Interesting. All right. Well, don't you love your olive oil? I do love my olive oil. I do. All right, right, we need to take a break. But when we come back, who could you listen to for 48 hours? 48 hours? (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. We're going to talk about that next. It is the audiobook that you can't quite imagine. You're along for the ride home. The genre of rom-coms... Say what you will about them. They had a huge impact in a gigantic heyday, although they've fallen on a little more difficult times Sleepless recently. Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. Um, you've Got Mail. Mm-hmm. When Harry Met Sally. Gigantic. French Kiss. Those are all the ones that start Meg Ryan. Now, way back before Meg Ryan, you know, hard to believe this, but Barbara Streisand was pretty much the queen of some significant rom-coms. And I'll go even a step further. Pre-rom-com, Barbara Streisand lit up the screen with a deep and hard romance. Forget the comedy. But Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford, in The Way We Were, Mm. was a massive, massive movie. Have you seen it? No. Never? No. It's a good film. Is it really? It's a good film. Yeah. It's it's well worth watching. Really? Yeah. It's well worth watching... Primarily just to see how beautiful Robert Redford is. Oh, yeah. In his prime. Right. And Streisand, no slouch, really. No, it's acting-wise? Yeah. No, certainly no slouch. Right. All this to say. I remember uh, What's Up, Doc. Oh, yeah. I saw Ryan that. Yeah, I remember seeing that when I was a little kid. How about Yentl? Oh, right. What about uh Starsborn? Yeah. Uh, Starsborn with... What did you with, think of that? Uh, Chris Christopherson. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I mean, how many times has Star- Stars Born been remade? Four three or five t- times. I, yeah, I know three. Judy Garland, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, Lady Gaga. Just recently, Lady Gaga, yeah. Who played the guy in uh, with Judy Garland? Uh, I'm. I, I, uh, yeah. James is an English actor. James, I'm sorry. Okay, uh, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, all this to say, I've been thinking a little bit. <laughs> A little bit about Barbara Streisand recently. Okay. Because I saw something uh, the other day about Barbara Streisand is about to drop um, her memoir. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that'll be something to read. And she does not sing a, a word in the memoir. Oh, wait, there's it's a, an audio book? There's an audio book, a version of the audio uh, of the book. Does she read it? James Mason, Lexi Shh, just said. Thank you, James Mason. Thank I was, you, I was Lex. close there. Um, yeah, the the book is called My Name is Barbara. Okay. And it drops on Tuesday. 
coming in at a door-stopping size of 992 <gasps> pages. What? Yeah. All this made me wonder. Oh, my God. Okay, so I, I read Bono's memoir, yeah. uh, many... Surrender, and that was I would say that was 600 pages. Okay. Well, I... Barbara's got them by a third. Which is not a surprise. Now, the audio version, which I'm always curious about. And she's reading it? She's reading it. Oh, no. <laughs> the audio version of My Name is Barbara drops in at a incredible 48 hours <laughs> and 15 minutes long. Oh, my God. 48 hours. Who is going to listen People to that? People love Barbara Streisand. Listen, I love Bono. Yeah. Getting through 22... By the end, I was like, I think we need to part ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, not forever, but just right. a little bit. That's it's a, a lot very, of one person. It's a lot of Bono. Yeah. This is way more of Barbara. Yep. It's like twice as much, more yeah. than twice as much. So I was wondering, you know, um, I think a lot of us have the audio version of the Bible, uh, you know, the Bible app. And yeah. Listen to the Bible. <laughs> and I'm wondering about, you know, how long is the audio <laughs> version of the Bible? We're going to do compare and contrast. Right. Yeah. So Barbara, uh, with my name is Barbara, 48 hours and 15 minutes. The average audio version of the Bible clocks in at 75 and a half hours. <laughs> and she's at 48. Mm-hmm. And that's the Bible. Yeah. Okay, that's way too long. She needs an editor. That's way, way too long. Well, she's lived a life. It, well, right? so have you. She's lived a life. I mean, not like that. That's a, She's intersected with the biggest names in entertainment and showbiz and politics. And I mean. Okay, but. I mean. Okay, but here's the thing. And it's part of your final statement. Sorry. Who's going to. Who's going to read that? Listen, if Barbara Streisand announced today she was going to go on a worldwide tour, she would still be able to fill up gigantic venues. I think that's probably true. There's no doubt. I think it's probably. I think that's probably true. But I. But I'm trying to look online to see how many pages uh, Bono's book was. I guessed that it was 600. I mean, don't you think this is true for a lot of people? I mean, this is not you and I, obviously, but for a lot of people, she is Sinatra esque. She is. Yes, she is. Especially if you have left-leaning politics, yeah. then she's probably a hero, heroine. I mean, look, you look at this. Um, it is 576 pages for a okay. So look at where we are in the, the Taylor Swift area era. Taylor Swift, as wonderful as she is, and I'm sure she is, I have no interest in, in that at all. But I, I really don't believe that Taylor Swift could hold a candle to Barbara Streisand oh, as well, far as vocal quality. Well, probably not as as vocal quality, but she's written way more songs than Taylor Barbara. Swift oh, yeah, yeah, than Barbara Streisand. Ever but did. Barbara Streisand, I mean, that was a force. It was a gigantic. Yes. And I'm but not Taylor trying to Swift say apples and oranges. But Taylor Swift is a force. But she's a songwriting force. Right. But the and cultural imprint of I Barbara think, Streisand. I think Taylor Swift will su- will surpass, surpass, really? surpass that. Interesting. I do. Now, Barbara Streisand doesn't think that. Well, when but. Taylor Swift is Barbara Streisand, it's age. How old do you think Barbara Streisand is? 82. That's my guess as well. I was going to say exactly 82. I mean, she may. Lex, what do you think? Would you look for that? Uh, when Taylor Swift, if Taylor Swift survives to the ripe old age of right. 82, I mean, she has will 50 she herself, more years. Yeah. Will she herself release a 48 hour audio version of her life? 
Well, with how we saw a story today about Taylor Swift fans in Argentina who are waiting to get camping, ticket, out. camping out for her for to get tickets for the Eras tour, and they want to be in the front row. Right. So they have been camping out for five months. <laughs> Not five days. Five months. And they say, people are mad at us. You think you've abandoned your life to sit in the front row of a Taylor Swift show. Uh, so we were pretty good because Barbara Streisand is 81. She'll be 82 in, in April. In April. Okay. So that's pretty good. Okay. Is there anybody that you could listen to for 40? Okay. There's no way I could listen to Barbara Streisand for 10 hours, let alone for 48 hours. I'd lose my mind. So is there anybody you think of? Is there any writer or musician or telling their life story? Yeah. Who or just maybe not even their life story or maybe talking about their views on the world. Wait, wait, or, he, wait let me, let, this is interesting because uh, the book apparently um, this is a where is this from showbiz 411 because they're talking about Barbara's book. Uh, otherwise, uh, the book is short on juice like little juicy stories, Mm -hmm. because an early story came out about Robert Redford. Um, But short on juice and long on philosophy. Oh, Uh Oh, I. There are no review copies that have been submitted so far. Because she doesn't want anybody to criticize them. So Barbara telling it like it is about dealing with the movie studios. But about how people can't look at her in the eye. Right. If they see her in a performance venue. How the films she directed were developed, how the records were made, and on and on and on. I mean, I'm not. No, is I'm there not, anybody? I'm that, not getting within spitting distance of that book. Okay, so anybody you could listen to. Okay, I could listen to. I mean, okay, so I love Malcolm Gladwell's books. I oh, think yeah. I think they're fascinating. But he's he's concise. He is concise. So could 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 I listen to Malcolm Gladwell for 48 hours? About about Malcolm Gladwell? No, him. Like a yeah, book that yeah, he wrote. I think so, because. Because he's fascinating, and he weaves so many intricate ideas in this disparate fashion, and, and then all of a sudden, they all come together. And how about the audio clips that yeah. he used? What was the book that we read? Um, Talking to Strangers. Excellent book. Oh, my. It's one, of, one book. of the best audio books I ever heard in my life. Yeah, really excellent. I mean, this guy knows how to do an audio book. Oh. David McCullough. Oh, Yeah. A David McCullough book. If David had... Truman. Yeah. Tr- <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how long imagine. that is. Oh, my gosh. If there was a, there's a, David, can you imagine David McCullough reading? Oh, there has to be an audio book. Maybe I'll do that. Of Truman. <laughs> yeah, why don't you do that? That'd probably be pretty good, uh-huh, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just got a new audio book uh, just the other day. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because uh, I, I, you and I have been talking about this, like, you know, our, our inability to read, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about this, and I, I stumbled upon something, and I thought, oh, um, yeah, I, I'd go ahead and read that. And uh, it's a new audio book. Somehow, what drew my attention to it, it, it has a, a thin tendril somehow to our town, oh, which you yeah. know I love. Of course. Um, and so the book is called Tom Lake by Ann Patchett. Which has gotten really wonderful reviews. I've heard about that book. So uh, that's actually in my queue is in it? Audible. Yeah. Well, it's eleven hours long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I'm looking at my audio, my, my book. Okay, Malcolm Gladwell talking to strangers was eight hours and forty two minutes. Um, let me see what what else is here. Uh, anything else here? Oh, 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 oh! This is interesting. I've not listened to this, but I read this when I was a kid. The Stand. Stephen oh, King Stephen King is forty seven hours long. <gasps> 
47 hours and 40 minutes long. Okay, so that's the same. All right, so maybe 48 hours is not that outrageous when it comes to audio. It's still outrageous. It's a gigantic. It's the Stand outrageous. is a gigantic book. I mean, the average, I'm looking at my queue here, seven hours, 11 hours. Yeah. Um, <sighs> the longest one I read by far was Bono's at 22. But yeah. I think most of them that I've read come in around 7, 12, 11, yeah, 12 something hours like that. Ballpark. Anyway, something like that. All right. Well, I mean, if you're a fan, right, something to look forward to oh, this Tuesday, the, the dropping of the audiobook of uh, My Name is Barbara. <laughs> we'll be right back. It's a ride home. It is time now, once again, for This or That. It's a, a weekly delve into the ridiculous, quite honestly. However, this week's a little different, I would say. Is it? I, I think so. I, I, I told you this. There's really nothing humorous about this. I, about I yours? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. I'll go first. Should I adopt a, 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 dow, a mm. dower persona? Well, I've been thinking about this because I've had a lot of endings Oh, yes. Lately. Yes. So this is the ending (laughs) version of this or that. All right. right? I I believe I'm ready. The end of fireworks. The end of a writing assignment. Oh, the end of a writing assignment. Because it's such a relief. The end of a sunset. The end of silence. I like the end of a sunset. The end of baseball season. The end of football season. I'll take the end of football season. The end of a party. The end of the work week. Oh, the end of a work week. Great. The end of a series you're streaming. The end of a good book. (sighs) The end of a good book. But they're both good. The end of the traffic jam. The end of a road trip. Oh, I don't, isn't it great just get out of the car at the end of a road trip? Just, we're done. We're there. The end of the worship service. The end of the potluck. The end of the worship service. The end of election season. Oh, show me the way. The end of the dental procedure. Uh, I'll take... <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I'll go for the end of election season, please. The end of a day at the beach. Mm-hmm. The end of a diet. Oh, no, the end of a day at the beach is so great. It smells so good. You feel so good. The end of a job interview. The end of a therapy session. Oh, the end of a therapy session. The end of a workout. The end of a fitful night's sleep. Oh, the end of a workout. You feel so good. Really great. You did it. You actually, you didn't want to do it, but you still did it. The end of a test. The end of an argument. Oh, the end of an argument. Because finally all that tension's over. That's the end of my this or that. Okay. All right, John. Well, I mean, it's been a week. Uh, but you've been in a little bit of a different circumstance because your wife has gone to visit family <laughs> in another part of the country. Yeah, look Is at this me. true? What's going on, Johnny? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. So she's going to be gone for what, 10 days? Uh, no, it's just seven days. Oh, just seven days. Yeah. Okay. Well, in light of that, I'm giving you the temporary bachelor edition hey, of this or that. Here we go. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Temporary bachelor, number one, Wendy's or Taco Bell? Oh, uh, uh, Taco Bell. 
Number two, really long hot shower or go for a pedicure? (laughs) Uh, I'm going for the hot shower. Okay. I'm not doing the pedicure. (laughs) That's too bad. Uh, Number three, Stouffer's French bread pizza or Hungry Man TV dinner? Mm, Yeah. I've got a, I've got a couple of Stouffer's French bread pizzas in the freezer here at work. Oh, so you could eat dinner here at work. I could. I'm doing the, uh, the Hungry Man. Nice. Yeah. Number four, sleep on the sofa mm-hmm. or sleep in the middle of your bed? Uh, no, some kid slept on our sofa last <gasps> night. Was it one of your kids? My f- one of my kids' friends. friends, they went to the Steeler game, and so he slept on the couch. That's been his, like, second home. So, yeah, I'm, I'm moving over. So I you're sleeping the in the bed. middle of the bed. Yeah. All right. Number five, carbs for every meal or carbs for every meal? <laughs> yeah, that came out the other day. I was like, I'll make dinner. Hey, don't you guys want a vegetable? And they were like, no. So carbs it is. <laughs> Number six, go clothes shopping or go food shopping? Oh, I'm going clothes shopping. Oh, yeah. I got that in there before. Give me that. Yeah, of course. That. Number seven, go three days without a shower or go three days without doing the dishes? No, no, neither or. I don't like either and of so those that's things. On, no, yeah. That's how the game goes. Well, I, I'd be more inclined to go three days without a shower. Yeah, I'd do that if I could. Number eight, yeah. do all the laundry or do none of the laundry? No, I, do all the laundry. Okay. Let's keep, keep things up. Uh, number nine, paint the bedroom or buy an area rug? Oh, I was thinking about pulling up the rug in the bedroom. I knew it. Yeah. Uh, buy an area rug. Okay. Uh, number 10, get the Thanksgiving stuff out early or get the Christmas lights up early by balancing precariously on the porch rail, even though you've had a shoulder replacement. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about that as well. I might do the lights. Uh, uh-huh. Early. Maybe with someone else. Maybe. Oh, for... Get them up there. Right? That's so ridiculous. Uh, Coke for breakfast or cereal for dinner? Oh, cereal for dinner. Yeah. Number 12, make a pie for your wife upon her return or make a sandwich for your wife upon her return? (laughs) She does not want my pie. I can make a good sandwich. Yeah. Uh, Number 13, John, in the Bachelor edition of this or that, let the dog sleep in your bed or you sleep in the dog's bed. Neither. Come on, Cap. This or that. I don't want that dog. This or that. I'm more inclined to sleep in the dog bed if I have to. Really? Yeah, because I don't want that dog in the bed. Is that true? Yes. Last one, eat candy or smoke a cigarette? Eat candy. (laughs) Love you, honey. Okay, well, if you've been paying any attention at all, you see what's happening in Israel, in the Palestine war, which is a a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And the the, the sort of backwash, what's happening here, especially on college campuses or in New York City, where there is this incredible rise of anti-Jewish hatred. I mean, it's shocking. And it's loud. It's I mean, serious. it's not it's it's a very small percentage of people who are doing it. But, man, are they amplified? Well, that's what it is to be in the modern times. And here we are, of course, in the city of Pittsburgh. Five years ago, the Tree of Life massacre happened. So we are deeply attuned to this. Yeah, we are. And as believers as well, there's a particular thread to all of this. Jeff Jacoby's with us. He's an op-ed columnist with the Boston Globe. And he's speaking about and knowing so well anti-Jewish hate. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, John and Kathy. It's good to talk to you, though I could wish we were meeting to talk about something less somber and sad. I know. Um, So, Jeff, uh, tell us your story. Um, Where are you from? What's your background? 
Uh, well, I'm a columnist for the Boston Globe. I've been writing a column at the Globe, which is the, the largest newspaper in New England, for uh, for a long time, since 1994. And for the last several years, I've also been writing a weekly newsletter, which is basically uh, even more of my writing that they managed to, to, to get me to produce every week. Um, but I grew up in Cleveland. My father... Uh, was a Holocaust survivor. My father's family was murdered in Auschwitz, and he was the only member of his family who came out alive. And he was originally from Czechoslovakia, from a from a small rural town in uh, eastern Czechoslovakia. He emigrated to the United States in 1948 and moved to Cleveland, met my mother, uh, and I was raised in the Jewish community in Cleveland. In a community that had many Holocaust survivors, uh, you know, among the adults, I would say at least a third to a half of my classmates growing up in, in the Jewish day school that we attended were the children of, of Holocaust survivors. So the, the, you know, the awareness of anti-Semitism and, and the awareness of what it could lead to has been a part of my consciousness uh, almost since I was was aware that I could have consciousness, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I can recall, I can still, I have a memory of myself in second or third grade writing the word Hitler on the bottom of my shoes so that I could literally rub out his name as I as I walked. That, that's how that's how ingrained the, uh, the the knowledge of it was to me. And over the years, you know, I've I've written about anti-Semitism. I've written about Jewish life. I've written about you know any number of things. Even though certainly on the you know in a newspaper like the Boston Globe, I write about all kinds of things: sure. politics and economics and foreign affairs and you know all the things that you would usually expect to find. Uh, but but this has always been, for obvious reasons, a key theme and, and an important one for me. And I've tried to use my column and my newsletter to explain to readers um, how anti-Semitism works and why why it's a mistake to simply lump it in with other kinds of bigotry, which is a very common thing that politicians and and public officials like to do. Um, in fact, we just saw just the other just yesterday, I think, President Biden or, or Kamala Harris, the vice president, making some announcement about a about a new initiative against Islamophobia. Um, Anti-Semitism is a creature completely different, and when you, if you know anything about Jewish history and, and the history of of Jews in the world, and you know, I mean, I know that I'm talking to a, to a, to, a, to Christian hosts and to a Christian audience, so we all know that in Genesis, God tells Abraham uh, that his descendants will will be spread north and south and east and west throughout the world. Um, and God, on the one hand, makes a promise to the Jewish people that they will never be completely destroyed. But I would say the flip side of that promise is that there will always be people who will be driven by a, by a desire, by a passion, to nevertheless try to bring about the destruction of the Jewish people. At the Passover Seder every year, there's one point in, in the liturgy, which is called the Haggadah, uh, in, in which we, we recite a line that says that what Pharaoh tried to do to the Jews in to the Israelites in Egypt, um, and you remember how in Exodus they talk about the you know the order from Pharaoh to drown every baby Jewish boy that was born. Um, at, the, at the Seder we say it wasn't only then, but rather in every generation there have been those who arose to try to wipe out the Jews, and in the end God always prevents that from happening. But as we know from my father's generation, you, you know. The, the Jews survived, 
but look how many were killed. One out of every three Jews on earth was murdered by the Nazis. Uh, and when you look at what happened in, in southern Israel on October 7, the, the bloodlust, the, uh, the, the brutality, the sadism, the glee with which all those Israelis were murdered tells you that this is not just – this is not just a case of bigotry. I don't like Jews the way I don't like blacks, or I don't like Chinese, or I don't like Yankees fans. It, it's something very different. It's of a whole different caliber. And I would say that connected to all of that is the reaction that you're talking about. In the streets of America and, and, and Europe, on college campuses, which we're accustomed to thinking of as the place where the most educated people in America can be found, the most enlightened, the most elite, the ones who have had exposure to the most uh, thoughtful ideas. And yet it's precisely there where, we, where we're being reminded that anti-Semitism is not a function of ignorance. It's not a function of, of lack of awareness. It's not a function of, uh, of being low class. It's not a function of being a peasant. You can be a college professor, a tenured college professor at Cornell University, and be telling a crowd that you were exhilarated and excited by the slaughter that Hamas carried out, which, was, which really happened. You see, the, you see these crowds of students and professors carrying signs, I stand with Palestine, or resistance by any means necessary, uh, a celebration of this kind of violence. Right. And it, it's all just one more reminder that, that anti-Semitism is a kind of arrangement, uh, a, a way of looking at the world in which whatever you hate most, you find a way to blame the Jews for. Yeah. Today, uh, you know, what people, what you know, college students are taught to hate most is colonialism and apartheid and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, oppression and racism. Whatever you hate most, you find a way to, to accuse Jews of it. In the Middle Ages, what Christian Europe was taught to hate most were people who rejected Jesus, people who rejected Christ. And they blamed that on Jews and held Jews responsible for that. In the, in the 14th century, as the Black Death was, you know, was, was causing uh, countless people to die of bubonic plague, people found a way to blame Jews for that. So my point is that it's not, it's not that there's some mistake that can be corrected and anti-Semitism goes away. It's, it's like a, 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 an ineradicable virus that keeps resurfacing you know, over and over again in history. And I fear that we are living now in an era that none of us could have could have predicted six months ago, a revival of worldwide anti-Semitism. And frankly, I, like a lot of people in the Jewish community, am frightened about the thought of what it might be leading to. I'm sure. And Jeff, it's shocking. I mean, you know, as you talk about Hitler eradicating one in three Jews, I mean, the, the number, this number worldwide, of course, I'm sure you know this, 16 and a half million Jews worldwide in a world population of more than 8 billion people. And so we right. point to the Jews as the source of all the problems. And as I talk talked to you in an email just yesterday, my, my 20-year-old kid sitting on the couch last night and he's going, why do people hate Jews? And is it just ignorance that people don't know their history, or is it always just the Jews or the bad guys, worldwide, historical, and that's how it's going to be? It's like saying I would, you know, I, I think I would answer your son by saying, why do people, why are there people who are who are uh, who who are bipolar you know, why why is it not possible to eliminate this 
the, the certain kind of derangement, the certain kind of mentality. Maybe that's not such a good example because that's more of a more of a sickness than a than a pathology. Um, you know why why you know why does cancer kill? Yeah, yeah. Cancer kills because that's what because cancer is lethal because cancer is murderous and because we haven't figured out a way to cure cancer. And hatred of Jews is it's the oldest social cancer in in, in human history. You, you know, I mean, just to go back to the Bible, you see the way Jews were spoken of, spoken of, you know, I mentioned Exodus, you know, but also in the book of Esther, look at the sure. way Haman spoke of the Jews. Oh, there's this people scattered throughout the, you know, throughout the king's lands and, you know, and they, they, they stick to their own rules and to their own, their own practices and the king might as well wipe them all out. Over and over and over again, you see this kind of thing. And, and, in the year 70, when the Roman legions destroyed the temple in, in Jerusalem and brought an end to Jewish sovereignty, uh, you know, that would, and, and sent Jews into an exile uh, from which they would not you know, return to sovereignty until 1948 with the creation of Israel, there was a, a huge triumph, as they called it, that was held in Rome, uh, you know, a gigantic parade, a gigantic festival in which they celebrated the destruction of Judea, which is what, what, the, what the land of Israel was called then. And these, these, these triumphs uh, had enormous um, uh, you know, d- dramas, like gigantic stages that would be paraded through the city, you know, through, throughout Rome, demonstrating and, and, and reenacting many of the battles that had taken place during the, during the, ro- the, the, the Roman crushing of the, of the Jewish revolt. And the very last thing in that great triumph in the year 70 was someone carrying a Torah scroll unrolled. That was the final thing, and it was meant to symbolize to the hundreds of thousands of people who were watching this parade through Rome that the ultimate defeat had been inflicted by the Roman legions because they had destroyed the Torah. They had destroyed the Jewish religion. It would be no more. And you can go to Rome today and see the Ark, uh, you know, the, the Arch of Titus, which shows the, the vessels of the, of the Jewish temple being, you know, carried off into, uh, as booty and as plunder. And you stand there and you look at it and you think the Roman Empire is gone, and yet the Jews are still here. And it, I would say it's something that, 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 again, I'm talking to a religious audience. I would say it's, this is something that God has built into the way the world works. God you know, chose Abraham and said that his children would, would influence the world for, for good. He told Abraham that you know, through you the whole world will be blessed. And I'm sure that Christians, knowing that Jesus was a Jew and, and worshipped in Hebrew and, it, uh, you know, and, and studied the Torah, would, you know, would certainly agree with that. Um, and at the same time, God said to him, those who bless you, I will bless. I will curse those who curse you. And history is full of example after example after example of people, whether individuals or entire nations, that were determined to curse the Jews and wipe them out. Uh, and in the end, the Jews are the ones who survive, but often only after paying a very terrible and frightening price. Yeah. Jeff Jacoby's with us. He's an op-ed columnist at the Boston Globe. Jeff, we need to take a break. Can you stay with us for a couple? Sure. Terrific. We'll be right back. It's the ride home. Jeff Jacoby is with us. He's an op-ed columnist for the Boston Globe. We're talking about why do people hate Jews? Jeff, uh, I just have, was 
really uh, both educated and moved by what you said in our last segment about uh, growing up as the son of Holocaust survivors. And um, just you gave us a great like historical sweep of uh, anti-Semitism. We only have about three minutes, uh, Jeff, so Mm -hmm. this is going to have to be tight. But uh, my question for you is, in light of all of that, um, I... as part of the Christian community, John and I both, what do, what do we do? What can we do? Um, I don't stand by the state of Israel 100% of the time. I don't think any, I don't stand by any country 100% of the time, but I certainly stand by the Jews 100% of the time. And so, I, but I don't know what that would look like. And from my perspective as a Christian, from your perspective as a Jew, uh, what can I do? not an easy question to answer. If there were an easy answer, I guess we would all have figured it out a long time ago. I guess I would say, Kathy, first of all, the Jewish people need allies. You know, mm-hmm. we've always needed allies. You mentioned the Jews are such a tiny, tiny fragment yep. of the world's population. I think it's, you know, two, two, two-tenths of one percent or two one-hundredths of one percent, some tiny, insignificant fragment. And, you know, there's this, this myth that's been perpetrated by anti-Semites for so long. The Jews are all-powerful. The Jews pull the strings of the world. The Jews control finance. You know, I mean, you think of Henry Ford, uh, right. you know, publishing, uh, you know, the, the anti-Semitic screeds and, 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 and spreading it all over, uh, all over the English-speaking world. There's this myth that Jews are all-powerful, that they have so much, so much control. But Jews need friends. Jews need allies. And I guess what I would say... If I were asked what could what can Christians do, um, uh, one is just to express that support. You know, not just to you know, not just to keep it to yourselves, not just to think it uh, in your own heart, but to you know, but to express it publicly. Um, I I would say number two is to try to learn more about the history of anti-Semitism and to try to get some understanding of it, and especially to go back to the very first point that I made, why it's not just some form, one of many countless forms of bigotry, but something unique in world history. And I've been thinking in these last you know these last few weeks that it would be wonderful if Christians all over America would organize, or Christian leaders, whether, you know, Catholic or Protestant or, or, or Orthodox, would organize a massive outpouring of uh, of support. You know, I remember, I remember back in 1987, something like a quarter of a million people came in support of Soviet Jews right. yeah. uh, on, on the Washington Mall. Now, uh, granted, that was largely organized by, by the Jewish communities, but wouldn't it be wonderful to see a million a million Christians publicly you know coming together to demonstrate in support as you say not not in support necessarily of Israel but in support of of Jewish, Jewish survival, yeah. in support of the right of the Jewish people to, uh, you know, to, to, to live as part of the human family without constantly being threatened, and and you know, and and come together to denounce unequivocally those who would wipe them out. I just think that to see a tremendous outpouring of support by Christians on, on behalf of their of their Jewish neighbors and fellow citizens would be wonderful. If I you know if I can make a quick plug here, I you know I've I've written quite a bit in the last few weeks about this stuff, and if any of your listeners are interested, you know, I have a humble website, jeffjacoby.com, where I post my columns, and people can sign up for a, for a mailing list, where I'm, I'm happy to send my columns out, no paywall, no ads, to anybody who's interested in seeing them. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, to the extent that I can help, just as the conversation goes forward, and, you know, in days and weeks to come, I'm here for you. 
That's very good. Jeff, thank you yeah, so much. It's been a real pleasure, Jeff. Your clarity, for your passion. We're sorry for what you're going we through. We are truly sorry, for, and we do support you, and we'll continue this conversation as we have in the past, and your voice has been very valuable for us here today. Jeff Jacoby from the Boston Globe. Please find me. JeffJacoby.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey now, good afternoon, and welcome to the 5 o'clock hour of the Friday edition of The Ride Home. Hope that uh, you were able to listen to our 4 o'clock hour, which uh, we absolutely love. Oh my gosh, listen, if you missed any of the 4 o'clock hour, especially, I think, our conversation with Je- Jeff Jacoby mm-hmm. um, from the Boston Globe, talking about what it's like to be Jewish today, and um, he kind of gave a... A little primer on anti-Semitism. I learned so much from it. And is a biblical perspective yeah, as well. Yeah, it, it was just, yeah. So check out our podcast, mm, The Ride Home with John and Kathy, if you missed any of that. Excellent. Um, is well, it too early for me to tell you? Tell me what. Your weekend has begun. Yeah, fabulous. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. That's Thank right. You. Coming up in this hour, uh, The Week in Review. What have we been talking about, thinking about, conversations that made us think, some good music, that sort of thing? Mm, all those things. Also, things to do in Pittsburgh this weekend and Daylight Savings Time coming up Saturday. <sighs> the worst Why thing can't possible. we get rid of that? Yeah. Okay. Um, how about uh, the mayors of five oh, big yeah. cities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they sat down with uh, President Joe Biden and gave a little earful there. Mm-hmm. The mayors of Denver, Chicago, Houston, L.A., and New York told the president in a letter obtained by the AP, I'm reading here from The Hill, John, I don't know where you're reading from, that they require federal help in handling an influx of migrants in their cities. The mayors argued they have not received enough help, resources, or coordination from the Biden administration. Migrants are sleeping in police station foyers in Chicago. In New York, a cruise ship terminal was turned into a shelter. In Denver, the number of migrants arriving has increased tenfold, and available space to shelter them has withered with fewer available work authorizations. Migrants cannot find work that would allow them to get into the proper housing. All this because the borders have been open. And of course, look, we've talked about this before. We are all for legal immigration. Yes. We don't want to exclude people no. as part of the American dream. But there has to be a process that makes sense and is has some kind of timeline that's workable. And so the mayors of these largely progressive states who opened their doors and said, well, we're a sanctuary, right? Right. And then when people showed up, they were horrified. Of course. Listen, the governor of Texas and Florida, yeah. when it, this all changed when they started sending migrants to these other states. New York State. That is when it all started to change. And then, of course, there was this appall, you know, oh, my goodness, the governor of New York and the governor of uh, Maine. Oh, this is appalling that you'd be sending migrants. And then it didn't take very long before they said, wait a minute, we don't have enough money to take care of these people, which is what the governor of Arizona has been saying for a decade. Got that right. Mayor Eric Adams of New York City, one of the biggest progressives of any major major city, and of course, New York City, along with Los Angeles, totally progressive. The mayor is pulling his hair out, literally saying, stop, you have got to stop sending people here. And we yet, are done. when it was the governor of Arizona, all they wanted to do is look down their nose at him and call him some bigot. You know, right. you're anti-immigration. It's not anti-immigration. It's just the fact that what I don't know what we do with all these people. 
So Biden has requested... <laughs> We're giving away money left and right. I know. Biden has requested $1.4 billion from Congress to help state and local governments provide shelter and services for migrants after earlier pleas from Democratic mayors and governors. That is not uh, happening anytime soon. Well, and the governor and the mayors that are meeting said 1.4 isn't nearly enough. They want five. Yep. Mayors also want an accelerated work authorization approval process so migrants can find work. And um, from day one, they said the federal government government has to do more, but we are waiting, and it's a slow process. No kidding. So, Imagine if you were uh, someone trying to get into the country illegally. You want to talk about a slow process. I mean, look, the wall, say what you will, had its place, right? right. It did. Listen, as the, as regular listeners to the show know, I'm no fan of former President Trump. But if he was presiding over this immigration crisis, the media would be eating him alive. They give Biden a pass on this in in comparison. They let him skate on this. I mean, how many, how long ago do we hear that, you know, ripping children from the, from the right or right. Or, or kids in cages or whatever. That whole thing. The numbers we're talking about now are outrageous. Last week, a poll found that 58% of New York state voters agreed with New York city mayor, Eric Adams, recent statement that the surge of migrants entering the city, quote, will destroy it. Amen. I mean, al- but again, when they were looking at people in Arizona, all they could say is, oh, my gosh, there's horrible people that live out there and how much they hate immigrants. Plus now it's their state. All of a sudden they're like, oh, no, it's going to destroy the city. All the other people coming in, the people who are a danger to us. Right. Hamas. Right? right. I mean, terrorist organizations. How many Chinese nationals have been coming in unabated? I so know. we don't even know who's in the country know. No, anymore. We don't, we don't and they will be the against us yep. and rise up and hurt us tremendously. So right. because the back door is open and people are just streaming in. I have a friend from Vietnam who has had her sister on a wait list. Uh, the, a wait list. You know, she's been on a wait list for 16 years because she's been doing this legally. 16 years. Instead of her just walking in the exactly. back door. Exactly. Right. Heaven help us. All I mean, right. the system is so broken. It really is. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to welcome Misha Willett into the program. He is the author of uh, several books on poetry. He's such a great thinker and writer. So we're looking forward to that. It's a perfect thing for a Friday afternoon. Stay close. Well, it's that weird time again when we fall back into the darkness, Mm. right? Don't forget to uh, set your clocks back one hour this uh, Saturday evening or Sunday morning whenever you choose to do so. I mean, now that you have a a smartphone, it does it for you. Well, what about your your microwave clock or your stove clock? How about my car clock? It'll be about three months from now that I'll finally get around to doing it, and then it'll be time to put it back. <laughs> and then I'll just say, forget it. <laughs> okay, well, the light is uh, fading from us, but Misha Willett is with us. Misha has been a regular guest of ours over the years. He is a poet and the author of The Elegy Beta and Phases. Misha's poems, essays, translations, and academic articles appear widely. He teaches English at Seattle Pacific University. Follow his work at MishaWillett.com. And Misha, welcome back, friend. It's been a while. So nice to hear your voice. Yes. How are you guys? We're doing well out here. Seattle is having a, a rare and beautiful autumn. Hardly any rain and the deep cold that makes all the colors come out. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Fabulous. And so you're thinking it, it about... like New England. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And so you're thinking about light like we're thinking about light. 
Yeah, that's right. My my wife is especially concerned about daylight savings. She always, she freaks out about it a month in advance. It's like <laughs> Christmas for her. She plans for it and really? wonders how she's going to cope with the change. For me, it's just fun. I like the extra bit of time to sleep. Okay, so why is it that she fears it, and why is it that you kind of Roll with it. don't care? Well... In part, I mean, Seattle is the, the northernmost large city in America. So there, there's no city that's further north than we are. So there's no place that's this affected by the changes in light, mm. right? It becomes really, really dark at around 430. Like yeah, you, yeah. Can't, you can't quite see. Mm. Um, and so, so those changes really affect people's body. And something with her biology, she just, she's not afraid of the dark as in the way little children are, but when it gets dark, in the winter, it affects her mood such that she thinks, well, I've got to cope with this somehow. Yeah. I mean, and that's a real thing. What's interesting, Misha, when you would say that to people like, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, they'd go, really? But now, you know, seasonal affect disorder, people yeah. suffer through this, right? I mean, there's light boxes and all kind of therapy and medication and whatnot, because the dark does envelop you and it doesn't make a change in people psychologically, spiritually. Yeah. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's just scientifically accurate. Um, but I'm sort of a cozy creature. Like I look forward to the occasion to not be asked to go outside very much and to to sit by my wood burning stove with a book and a blanket on my lap. Like that's a whole scene for me that I look forward to each year. Yeah. So the idea of falling back, uh, a, a connection for you to because of that, yeah. Well, yeah, that that's right, and that's part of just being a literary fellow, right? Like, give me a, a book and a nice candle, and I'm happy for the next six hours. <laughs> So does that come with um, the place you live? You know, I was thinking that I was sitting in front of my fireplace that I feel very, very fortunate to have last night. And I was thinking, (laughs) I don't mind winter like I used to. Because of a fireplace? I think. And I I think it's made me, I don't know, it's more tolerable. It helps my mental health. I don't know. I mean, do you you look at things the way you do because of the environment in which you live, Misha? Oh, massively. I sort of wish I wasn't so dependent on it. But um, I remember when we first moved to London, um, uh, shortly after our marriage, I went to go teach over there for a year as a guest. And I was so miserable and I couldn't figure out why, even though I had a lovely apartment and I was living in this gorgeous world-class city, until I realized at Christmas, we, we had moved you know, in August, I realized at Christmas that we didn't have a radio in there. And I, we got one for Christmas, a little, you know, fireplace top. It's out on the mantle, a little radio. And it changed everything about my mood and experience of being alive. Just having a little background music, you know, you got to work in radio. Sure. It mattered so much to my mental health and sense of being in a, a populated kind of world. Interesting. So a little tiny adaptation is a panacea to something that uh, is ill to you, yeah? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's that's the way to say it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Misha, because you're a poet, and uh, you have one perspective from your wife and your own uh, in a perspective about light. Uh, do you have a poem for us uh, about light or shadows or seasonal change that that you could share with us? Yeah, sure. And this is the time, you know, with with Advent coming up soon, where where Christians especially start thinking about the light. Um, this is from a book. Uh, by Alicia Ostricker called Waiting for the Light. Um, and it's about, it's about this, um, this notion that we can see Christ through everything and in everything, yeah. It's called August Morning, Upper Broadway. Hmm. 
As the body of the beloved is a window through which we behold the blackness and vastness of space pulsing with stars, and as the man on the corner with his fruit stand is a window, and the cherries, blackberries, raspberries, avocados, and carrots are a rose window, like the one in Chartres, yes, or the one in Paris, through which light floods from the other world, the pure one, stabbing tourists with malicious, abundant joy. Through the man is tired in the summer heat and reads his newspaper listlessly, without passion, and people pass by his stand buying nothing. Let us call this scene a window, looking out not at paradise, but as a paradise might be, if we had eyes to see the women in their swaying dresses, the season's fruit, the babies in their strollers infinitely soft, clear window after clear window. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. What was that line? Malicious? Stabbing tourists with malicious, abundant joy. That's so good. That is what happens, right? You see something beautiful and it, and it hurts. And it aches in your chest exactly yeah. in that way. Yeah. And light somehow. I think people, if you're in tune with the light, right, it, it acts as almost um, like a, a Christmas wrapping around the rest of the world. Mm. Right? There's, there's something that's beautiful yeah. about light. I mean, it, it infuses every corner, every treetop. Uh, just, I mean, I, I hope it's heaven will be filled with all shades and manner mm-hmm. of light. Mm-hmm. That'll be something to look forward to. A beautiful thought. Yeah, it's the first thing I notice every morning. I don't necessarily see what the weather's doing. Like, oh, is it raining? Is it snowing? I have no idea. Or what time it is or anything else. I always look out the window and I notice the quality of the light. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I see people, you know, our house is um, further enough away from, um, you know, neighbors and whatnot that we tend not to have window blinds on, which is, you know, sometimes a blessing and a curse. Sometimes we'll, <laughs> right. we'll, we'll use shears, but to see the purity of the light, or no, no yeah. matter where you are. And of course, you know, being outside in the in the fall and the spring and the summer and the I mean, the light is just always ever changing. I just, mm-hmm. I just love it so much. I just uh, and I love that idea that the poem brings up, Misha, that the that the light we're getting through the fruit or through the stained glass window mm-hmm. is like the light from another place, from the other world. Yeah, that's right. That they're, they're glimpses of that beyond, of that, that beauty that we're all pulled towards. Hmm. That's really good. We're talking about light with uh, Misha Willett. He's a poet uh, from Seattle. Okay, so Misha, you know, it's interesting, you know, so there, there you are in the largest city in the, in the farthest northern part of the country. And, you know, we do share this. Kath and I, we sit up here on the sixth floor of our studio, and we know what's coming. You know, we're, mm-hmm. when we leave here in, in, in the evening. At 6.30 p.m., it's, it's Dark as night. It's black right. and cold, and we we regularly curse the darkness. We really do. You know? um, and as soon as the winter equinox happens, the day after, we're like, no, this okay. The days are getting longer, starting today. Right. Like uh, we're moving so in the exciting, right direction. You can feel it. Yeah, you can. Yeah. I mean, sort of light in our world. Light and baseball go hand in yeah. hand, <laughs> and, and and they both ended this week. So, we, <laughs> medication is not too far from not too far behind. Uh, that's right. Here. Misha Willits with us. He's the author of The Elegy Beta and Phases. His poems, essays, translations, and academic articles appear widely. Um, Misha, give us another poem, if you can, before you leave us. 
Yeah, sure. There's some. This one here is a new one of mine um, that I've been working on. I haven't published it yet. It's going to be part of the third book uh, whenever that comes out. And um, it's thinking about what light does. I have a friend who freaks out on Twitter a little bit about the, the dying of the light. And he's always says, like, the year is dying. We have to, we have to commemorate it with bomb, bonfires and this kind of thing. So I was thinking about the effect of light and time. And, and this is called past time. Furniture everywhere fades. Green and velvet arms, upholstered, fine, thinning, and soft, fade. Spilt tea, collecting in saucers, fades. The saucers themselves, hand-painted, fade. Smoke, once elegant and everywhere. The chatter, small bell in the entryway, its brisk ring. The marble, the iron leg supporting the marble top, fades. The year, the light, fades. My eyes, yours, fade. Music the memory of moving. I keep coming to the same places and watching everything disappear. <laughs> well, that's dark. Oh. <laughs> that's the word for it. That is dark. Yes, that that's is, what we're headed for, friends. That is dark. Oh. So for people who don't love poetry and they hear that, um, and they, you know, or maybe they didn't hear it. Maybe they just heard a bunch of words and they didn't stop right. to hear it. Like, you know, that was me for, you know, 40 years. Um, <laughs> what are people missing if they, if poetry isn't a part of their life? Oh yeah. Well, there's gold in them, their hills. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily the fault of the hearer. I'll say that first of all, that a lot of poetry requires rereading, not just that it's a little better, you really can't do it. You're not getting it if you if you can't see it and you can't hear it four or five more times. So if you've spent most of your life with poetry sort of flying over your head, I think you need to spend more time with it in front of your face, mm -hmm. right? And stare at it and, it, and it, it will come too. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, Misha, the, uh, the light has faded from this segment and we are headed towards the darkness of a commercial break. <laughs> So as always, a pleasure. <laughs> Misha, give us the title of the uh, of the first poem you read. Uh, this was called "August Morning, Upper Broadway" by Alicia Ostricker. Mm -hmm. And your poem from a yet untitled book, yes. That's right. Although, what do you think about this for a title? I might call it. This gift card has already been redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it, too. Very much. Excellent. Misha, it's always a pleasure, friend. Thank you for being with us. Take care. Our time is uh, over with Misha Willett. Look for him online. We love him. MishaWillett.com. You've been waiting for this trip for a long time, and finally... You get in your car and then get in line on the parkway to get to the airport. Then you get to the airport, you get in line for the parking garage. Then you get out of the car, you get in line for the TSA check. Then you get in line once you reach the counter uh, to check in. Then you finally start to board where you no, get wait, in line what about, there as well. What about the, the tram? Oh, the tram. Right. <laughs> Which isn't going to exist for much longer, but... But the process of getting to the airport and getting in to line the plane. to the plane, greater minds than you and I. And, of course, the airlines, if they could figure out a way to load people efficiently into, into the plane, it would save them precious minutes, which over the year would save them precious millions and millions of dollars. 
Well, uh, United Airlines has uh, recently implemented a system called WILMA, which is a rough acronym for its new boarding chronology, Window Middle Aisle, except that it's not new. In fact, the airline boarded coach passengers that way until 2017. The the I doesn't stand for anything. Wait, who did that until 2017? United Airlines. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is an astrophysicist. And uh, he says that he has a better way to do this. His name is uh, Jack Steffen. And Jack Steffen works at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He developed what is said is the optimal boarding strategy, and he published his findings 15 years ago. He said he himself just got tired of standing in line. And um, here's, how, here's how it will work for, for him. He said that now there are different variations on this theme. But the most effective way... This is his recommendation. Yes, is the first person to board a single-aisle jet, like a Boeing 737, is the passenger in the window seat of the last row. Yes. That's 30A. Yeah. The next person will be exactly two rows away in 28A, followed by 26A, 24A, 22A, until the window seats in every row on the right side were full. Next are the window seats in every row on the left side, 30F, 28F, 26F, and on and on. Then come the window seats in odd rows on the right and the left, starting from the back. The same patterns apply to middle seats, aisle seats, and to the last person on board, plops into the front row. Now, that's just one permutation. There are others that would achieve identical results, he says. But by doing that, the idea is that you space out passengers in alternating rows to reduce the probability of traffic jams. Mm -hmm. The primary bottleneck, of course, is people waiting in the aisle, mostly because of how long it takes for others to load their luggage. But you can fix that, Maxim, the number of passengers stuffing their bags into overhead bins simultaneously. It takes a serial process, one at a time, and makes it a parallel, several at a time, doing the same thing, and then the flow would quickly move forward. I love everything about that. How do you do that? How? No, wait. How? But why, why has this not been implemented yet? I'm sure it's not because of first-class passengers, right? Because you buy first-class ticket. You're the first to get on, unless you're elderly, disabled, people with children. There's always that flow. Okay, what if you, okay, so what if you still kept that flow? You did first class. You did people who are elderly, have mobility needs, right. uh, active duty military, and whatever it is. And then instead of it being the rest of us, like groups A, B, C, why wouldn't it be exactly what that physicist said? Because also it would take is a person to mess it up. They would call 30A, and 30A is not anywhere to be found. So then they bump into 28A, and I'm not saying it wouldn't work. Believe me, I'm sure the airlines are willing to try just about anything to sort of ease the flow. Uh, It just seems like that would be worth a try. But don't you think the airlines have looked at this problem ad nauseum over the many decades? And they probably brought in, you know... People like this, astrophysicist or statistician, so any number of bright math minds to fill up a metal tube in a single file. How does that best work? But or do they care? Oh, they care because I believe it really is a cost-saving measure on their I end to do so it, effectively. I don't think I. I wonder if that changes their profit margin at all. Well, delays at the gate, right, are one thing. Yeah, but how often are delays at the gate because people can't get in the plane? Yeah, I don't know. Delays at the gate are usually some other reason. I have a feeling, this is only my thought, that they don't have the customer as their priority. Well, just, I don't know. But the customer being being us, that sounds 
it just makes so much sense. It makes a lot of sense. Imagine going into an airplane and being able to put your bag up high without being completely crushed by humanity right. around you. And feeling guilty and okay, overwhelmed. Right? Alternating window seats. 30A, 28A, 26, and then just fill it up like that. I love the idea. I love it, too. It's in today's Wall Street Journal. I endorse it. It's been another week. That means it's time for John and Kathy's Week in Review. What was everyone talking about this week? Uh, I would say, at least in my circles, people were talking about the alarming horror of the rise of anti-Semitism. What happened at Cornell, statements from people here in the United States and around the world about those Jews, this and that and this, which to me is absolutely shocking. It is. That's what I would say people are talking about. You? Uh, I would say that. Uh, That was my first thing. The second thing, I think a lot of people are talking about the Inamorado Rocky uh, County executive race. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here locally. Yeah, and, of course, you mentioned the article in yesterday's Washington Post about Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, it's making national headlines Mm -hmm. as well. So a very, very tight race, which has a big impact on Allegheny County. And they're telling us further beyond to presidential politics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was a conversation that made you think... I imagine what you're going to say. So I would say a couple of other things first. Okay. I really loved our conversation with Daniel Snoke uh, yeah. Tuesday at 540. Yep. That was excellent. Mm-hmm. He's wonderful. What a musician. Yep. And just amazing person. And, 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 a, and a thinker. Yeah. Freda, Frederica Matthews Green, Wednesday at 515, she talked about um, Mary as the early Christians viewed her and praying praying. Well, I won't pray for you then because I'm praying to Mary as an intercessor. Why are we doing that? That was interesting to me. Right. She was saying that when someone from the Orthodox perspective says, I am going to ask Mary to pray for me, like the mother of Jesus to pray for me. Protestants like us, what "What are you? Go straight to Jesus. Go straight to Jesus. And she's saying, no, wait a minute. If you ask me to pray for you as your friend, why aren't you going straight to Jesus? Why are you asking me to pray for you? <laughs> Which was a little eye-opener, wasn't I it? I never thought exactly. about it Exactly. Yeah, very good, Frederica. Yeah. yeah. And what about you? Um, so I picked, I couldn't decide between two. Uh, of course, Jeff Jacoby from the Boston Globe talking about anti-Semitism on yesterday's show, Thursday's which, show at 510, which we replayed today at 410 because we thought it was so worthwhile. Important. Um, I... I gained so much from that. Me too. I'm going back on our own on our own podcast and listening to it tonight um, because I just didn't feel like I got I, I needed to get more about what he said. Um, but also, I thought talking to Chris Martin Wednesday at 4:40 about mi- misinformation and disinformation on social media in regards to the war between Israel and Hamas. Mm-hmm. How to tell? Was your source? Yeah. Where's your source? And you know the questions you should ask yourself. Anyway, both of those Wednesday at 4:40. Thursday at 510. They're both so good. It's a good week. Really, really, really good week. Check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What are you reading? Well, we both kind of made this confession earlier in the week about our lack of enjoyment of reading that, you know, things have really shaded it in the past. Although I did say earlier in the show that uh, I'm really excited about starting a new book called uh, Tom Lake. By Ann Patchett. Yeah, yeah, to the yeah, top yeah. of my list here. So, what did I read this week? 
mostly what I read every week, which is news, opinion, insight, commentary, more news, and more news on top of that, which is right. absolutely kind of, quite honestly, like a little exhausting. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, I am just finishing How Far to the Promised Land by Esau Macaulay. Oh, yeah. Um, we read it before we interviewed Esau a couple Ever weeks so ago. Quickly. But in a flash, and I had to go back and like get my highlighter out. And actually, it is such a worthwhile read. I love it. What did you eat? Uh, so my wife is traveling, mm-hmm. but before she left, you know, as such a good woman that she is, she stocked things up, right? So we're not left empty-handed. Mm-hmm. She made a pot pie. Oh. Mm-hmm. Talk about like the ultimate in comfort food, the pot pie with crust. Man. So uh, the pot pie crust mm. when it is covered with the gravy. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, nothing screams November like pot pie. And so here we are. Oh, my God. That's what I'm eating. I love it so much. You? I made gingerbread. Oh. I don't mean the kind of gingerbread that, like, you would make a gingerbread house out of or yeah. cookies. Like, like bread. Cake. Like cake. Yeah. Like gingerbread cake. And it, I haven't made it in, I mean, d- probably 15 years. Hmm. It just came upon me. I thought, I should make gingerbread. It is the most delicious texture. Really? The one I made has this lemon glaze on top. So you've got the, like, the deep dark molasses taste of the gingerbread with the bright tangy lemon glaze i love it Mm. i really love it sounds easy (laughs) (laughs) what did you watch well uh, i sucked kath into this we were watching the World Series. Oh, my gosh. I watched baseball, ever? baseball. Ever? I mean, I watched first round of playoffs. I mean, I just I watched baseball all season long. I watched baseball after baseball. It is, to me, it's a meditation on life, even with the added pitch clock, which at first I abhorred. Yeah, me too. But I really grew to appreciate it. And I think the players all went, yeah, we're yeah, on board. I think they were. Really, They were very, mm-hmm. you know, I'll be interested to see if MLB does anything. It's still the best sport to me. It's the best sport. I think so. I I totally agree. I mean, (laughs) it's the sport that welcomes kids. Mm -hmm. It's the sport that happens outside in the warm weather. It's the sport that requires strategy, mono, mono. Way, way down the line. I mean, you're thinking about something in the first inning that might happen in the eighth or ninth or extra innings. It's just. it's my favorite. Yeah, me too. So we watch baseball. Of course, the Texas Rangers, our good friends, Scott and Lauren from yeah, Dallas. are living their best life right because now. Because the Texas Rangers won their first World Series ever. So we watched it until the last pitch. Yes, we did. I turned to my kid, my you know 20-something-year-old kid, and I said, that's it. No more baseball. And he was like shaking his head. like He felt the same way, Sad. which I'm grateful that he did. Yep. The yep. end of baseball. That's what we watched. Uh, so I finished Homeland this week. Hey, congratulations. <laughs> yes, thank you. This uh, show started about a decade ago. It just finished three years ago. But I watched the whole thing in probably, I don't know, seven weeks or something like that. Uh, it has catapulted into my top three favorite TV shows of all no time. No kidding. Oh, good. That's a high That's praise. That's how much I loved it. And I have to say this, it ended perfectly. Oh, wow. Oh, I okay, was, say no more then, even I'm, the last episode, I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to like this. I'm not going to like this. And the way it ended, I thought, oh, good. Oh, Excellent. perfectly done. Well, I'm one episode perfectly in. Perfectly done. Watch it on Hulu. What was the best news you heard this week? 
Well, this has been, I've talked about this the last couple of weeks, a particularly brutal stretch, personally. Uh, Two very significant deaths in my life. And I will say this. The best news I heard this week that I know this week is that death is not the final word. Mm. And as much as you feel the sting, uh, my friends, I believe, are with Christ Mm. in a very difficult situation for both these men. And I love them dearly. My friend Bob and my nephew Danny. um, The best news is I believe, truly I do, that they are with Jesus. And so that's the most excellent news that any of us could ever hope for. Mm. I'll second that. What have you been listening to? Well, after that, I needed a little upbeat. (laughs) Something changed. So I go back to my parents' music oftentimes, right? Because you grow up at the knee of your parents' soundtrack, and they bring back a flood of memories and emotions. So I go back to this. This is from 1942, The Wang Wang Blues. Sextet. Wow, I love that. It's a great song. I mean, what, what's what's the name of it? Uh, the Wang Wang Blues. I've never heard it. Which goes back to the 1920s as a you know blues standalone, and of yeah. course everybody came along, put their own twist on it. But that's the Benny Goodman version. Wow, this makes me feel happy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got to be honest. What I'm listening, what is so different than that? Always. Okay. This is what I. Got. What is that? So that's the Black Crows. Remember the Black Crows? Oh, sure. Yeah, from the 90s. Those are the the Robinson brothers. Chris is singing. I can't remember the guitar player brother. Rich? Mm. I think Rich is his name. Anyway, they did a uh, tiny desk. Just the two of them, without the rest of the band. And these two have been arguing for decades. Uh, And the band would stay together and then it would fall apart and then it would stay together and fall apart because of their issues. But man, they are so good. That's cool. And I had never heard their tiny desk. I just came upon it on uh, Tuesday night. Wow, I love it. Fabulous. Black Crow's tiny desk. All right. Understand. 
Well, despite us falling backwards, there are still plenty of things to do out and about this weekend. So I hope you avail yourself of some of these things. One of the things that's happening, uh, organizers call it the largest pet expo in the United States, happening from 5 o'clock to 9 o'clock on Friday, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Saturday, and 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Sunday at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center. Competitions, demonstrations, giveaways, photos with Santa, as well as high-flying dogs, performing pigs, and racing turtles all packed into two <laughs> acres, more than 250 exhi- exhibition booths, and numerous shelter and rescue organizations. The Pet Expo. Tickets are 12 bucks for adults, $10 for seniors. So uh, you can go out. There are going to be other than turtles? So yeah. Maybe like pups and kitties? And all kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. All inside the David Owens Convention Center. Tiny pigs? Yep. How about the Ink for Impact Flash Tattoo Event? Nope. Sunday at Spirit in Lawrenceville, featuring 16 tattoo artists in a flash. If you're thinking about it. All right. Okay. The event is free to attend. Artists will determine the cost of a tattoo. Prices start somewhere around 100 bucks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the Blues and Heritage yes. Festival. Okay, so that's at the August Wilson Center. Yes, starts it is. tonight. Sixth annual Highmark Blues and Heritage Festival. Um, this year's event showcases two generations yeah. of blue stars. Bobby Rush and Eric Gale yeah, on Friday. That's, he's a terrific guitar player. Listen to this. Saturday. Grandmasters of Latin Music, percussionist Peter Escovoto, featuring Nestor Torres, singer and original member of the Buena Vista Social oh. Club, or Mauro Portundo, will perform. Escovoto is 88, Portundo's 92. They say this will be their final tour. Listen, if I didn't oh. have plans and family coming in from out of town, I That's would it. be there. 60 bucks for a ticket. Yeah. Uh, designer Days. The 53rd Annual Designer Days, a shopping event of high-end clothing, shoes, and accessories, Friday through Sunday at Thriftique in Lawrenceville. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Hours are 10 to 5 Friday and Saturday and 10 to 3 I on Sunday. I love Thriftique, man. You know what I, I just wore yesterday? What? My uh, sweatshirt I got there two oh, years ago. Oh, did you though? It's one of my favorite, favorite yeah. sweatshirts. Mm-hmm. If I could, like, I even looked up the number on it to see if, like, to I replicate could. replicate it. Yeah. I couldn't find it Interesting. anywhere. Yeah, okay, so Thriftique, Designer Days in Lawrenceville. That is awesome. There's a lot going on, right? Also, uh, we're going to be falling back on mm-hmm. Saturday night mm-hmm. until our conversation with Misha Willett. In my head, we were losing an hour of sleep. Oh, no, we're falling back. Well, now I'm thrilled with it. Yeah, of course. I was complaining all about it. No, no. Now, I mean, I get wish the we extra didn't, hour. But I'll take an extra hour. I of sleep. guess. I guess. And the weird thing is, like you said earlier, because of our phones, there's no like sort of anxiety. Like I'll set the alarm wrong, or I'll be all out of sorts on that day. You still may be out of sorts. Oh yeah. But at least your phone will tell you it's the correct time. Doing music in a church. Uh, I mean, there were decades of my oh, life where angsty, I, angsty. where musicians wouldn't show yep. or, you know, they end up being 50 minutes late or, you know, thinking that they were 10 minutes early. And, yeah. oh, what a total mess. It's, uh, yeah. It's, so anyway, technology is going to help us. Uh, also, it's National Sandwich Day. Oh, okay. Uh, favorite sandwich uh, of all time, or maybe just a couple. I don't, you don't have to narrow it down to one. Lexi, I'd like to start with you. Favorite sandwich. If you're making a sandwich with anything you've mm-hmm. got, what are you going to put on it? Well, if it's just, if I'm not thinking about it and I'm just packing a lunch, yep. it's got provolone um, salami on it. Real? That's it. Is that right? That's pretty but good. But if I'm, I'm thinking about it, it's a BLT all the way. Yes. Anytime I go out to I and I don't you. know what to get, it's a BLT. BLT. Nice. Excellent. Nice. John? Okay, as a kid, Growing up, 
the high water mark for me <laughs> was a chipped ham sandwich mm. with potato chips. Oh, and mayo? No, okay. nothing else. That's it. On white bread. That's okay. I mean, it was as spare as spare as could be, but that was Pittsburgh. Yeah. Today, if I'm going to make a sandwich, I mean, if I had like, you know, okay, well, like Lexi says, how many times did I say BLT on the show? A lot. So I'm doing a BLT. Yeah. I'll join you there. You? Okay. Uh, I'm doing tuna salad with Swiss and uh, pickles. Excellent. Well, happy, happy uh, national sandwich. sandwich and celebrate. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.